Hey everyone, back again. Today I want to talk about Kant's notion of the transcendental aesthetic. And the reason I'm doing this is because I firmly believe that I did a poor job in presenting the entirety of his first critique, that is the critique of pure reason. And in a few months, I'm going to be doing a longer exposition or exploration of German idealism from Kant onwards. So I want to get this down in the record that I actually know what I'm talking about and to give you all a firmer grasp of Kant's main ideas from the Critique of Pure Reason here, starting with the transcendental aesthetic. But before jumping into it, hi, I'm David. I explain philosophical concepts and ideas and ways to make them accessible to you. So if you're new here, like, share, subscribe, you can go and see my 300 episodes I already have up. If you found this on YouTube, you're going to be able to find it in a podcast form under the exact same name, pretty much anywhere where you got podcasts where there shouldn't be any ads. Shouldn't be. There might be one, but likely not. If you found this on a podcast platform, you're going to be able to find the video of it on YouTube if you're into that at all. If you want to help me out, do all those things I just mentioned, like share, subscribe, tell your friends. You can help me out monetarily via Patreon or Pay PayPal, but no pressure to do that. If you want to follow me anywhere other than here, you can find me on Instagram at theory underscore and underscore philosophy if you want to see mostly pictures of my cats. And yeah, links for all these things in the descriptions. description if you're interested in that. Yeah, let's jump into this very important idea from the Critique of Pure Reason. Now I've covered this text in its entirety and like I said, I don't think I did a great job presenting it. With that being said, I don't think I said anything wrong in it. I just think I did a poor job presenting it. So you could probably still get something from it if you went and checked it out. I also have covered his critique of practical reason, his groundwork on the metaphysics of morals, and the critique of judgment, which I think are pretty, they're fine. So you can go check those out if you want. Now, in short, what Kant was doing with the critique of pure reason was to do just that, to critique pure reason. Pure reason being the effort to try to understand things in the world or things outside of the world, outside of the universe, like God, by just thinking, by just saying, I can sit in a chair and I can just think my way to truth. Kant was like, you can't do that. Pure reason is always going to run up against certain limitations if it tries to apply itself to metaphysical ideas, ideas that extend beyond the physical world, that it is ill-equipped to handle. So Kant says, throughout the course of this book, it becomes apparent. What Kant tries to do is not to look to the metaphysical, outside of the physical world to find certain truths. Instead, he says, okay, what if we try to look for truths within the physical world, universal unchanging truths within this world that can potentially lead us to an understanding of the beyond, which can only be speculated about. It can only be hypothesized, but can nevertheless be sought, can be pursued following the breadcrumbs of the human capacity for experience in the world. So when we talk about experience, very basically for Kant, it looks like this, that we see things, we touch things, we smell things in the world through our senses, and then our brains transform that sense data into ideas in our mind that we can make sense of. So to be a little bit more precise in how Kant lays out this process, first we have sensibility. We sense things in the world. And then we have intuition, which is like when 
we've sensed something and we have uh, an immediate possibly bodily reaction to a thing. If we touch a hot stove, we don't even need to think about it. Like we intuit that we do not want to touch the hot stove again. Then from there comes understanding. And then from there, the possibility to form concepts. Now, it's not totally important to get into the weeds of this process itself right now. Instead, we are only focused on this possibility of experiencing things in the world. And when I say the world, I, I mean the universe too, all things within the physical realm. So because we experience the world through our senses, that is our senses take in data from outside of us, and then our brains translate that data, the things that we perceive in the world do not actually come to us as they are. They are filtered through our senses and then our brains, our minds, then organize those things and make sense of them according to the parameters, the limits of our own minds and our own brains. So we don't actually come in contact with a thing in itself as it appears to itself with an asterisk, if anything can really appear to itself, but as a thing is in itself, we only see what our brain permits us to see of a thing, which might explain why different people might have different taste. Some people might like mushrooms, some people might not. Some people might see the color blue when they look at a tapestry, whereas someone else might see the color green. You know, some people might hear Laurel, some people might hear Yanny, if anyone knows about that reference. The point is that things that appear to us in the world are not necessarily going to be the same for everyone because we have different senses, we have different histories, we have different experiences, we have different minds. And this will alter and shape the way that we actually experience things in the world. So Kant was very much aware of this and he said, okay, instead of doing what the skeptics before him did, like Descartes, like others, he wasn't content in saying, oh, well then we can't know anything about the world. We can only speculate that maybe it doesn't even exist out there, that we're all just being duped because there's no truth to it. Kant was like, no, no, no. We can still find some fundamental truth to this capacity for experience by the very fact that we are able to experience it all. So what is universal is that we all have the innate capacity to perceive things within space and time. Now, this is true whether or not anyone might uh, be experiencing a, a disability or might have a disability where perhaps they are not able to see, they can still nevertheless experience things through touch or smell or through any of their other senses that are made available to them. And so Kant asks, what is it that makes it very possible or possible at all for us to have experiences in the world? And what makes it possible is our ability to perceive and grapple with a fundamental grounding to all experiences, to all objects in the world, and that is space and time. So objects, no matter how different they might appear from one person to another, some person, some, someone might not like mushrooms, someone else might like mushrooms. I like mushrooms, but you might not. In either case, mushrooms exist within space and time. No object, despite how variable objects might be to their human or to a human perceiving them, no object can exist outside of space and time. So we might be able to imagine no objects existing in our, in our mind, but we can't imagine a world, a physical universe, that exists outside of space and time. That is, we can't imagine space and time just suddenly poofing away. So this necessity to experience things in space and time are an example for him of a priori sensibility. 
So sensibility is easy, just perceiving something. A priori is a bit of a trickier, trickier term. A priori refers to prior to experience, and it is a universal designation. So if you know something or something is known a priori, it is known before being taught it or being or experiencing something that would give you that idea. Because if you learn something within experience, it would be called instead a posteriori. It is found within experience and you learn about it in experience. So an a priori sensibility is a knowledge of a certain possibility of sensation that comes to us before any experience of any sensation. So in order to have any experience in the world, in order to have any contact with a thing, with a person, with a phenomenon, with, with an event, we must already be equipped with the capacity to experience things within space and time because these are absolutely necessary for us for any experience to occur at all. So therefore, we must have an innate capacity to grasp space and time. Now, to clarify things as much as humanly possible, maybe more so than Kant because he kind of leaves this, he buries this a little bit, space and time do not exist out there in the world. They are not things that exist in themselves apart from us. Because if they did, then we wouldn't have an innate capacity to perceive them. They wouldn't reflect our mind's capacity to experience or to understand things in the world. We would be born and then have to somehow learn about space and time. But that would imply then that our experiencing of things before space and time, before we've learned about them, would be an absolutely chaotic mess of no sense. Things would be moving backwards in time, things would be existing in non-space or existing in realms that are just imperceptible to humans. So even as children, as we are born, we experience things within space and within time. Even if, you know, we're kids, we can't necessarily uh, for formalize this or to or put language to it to express this, we nevertheless still experience things in this way. So the, these a priori sensibilities, that is space and time, or the study of them, is what he calls the transcendental aesthetic. Now, what he means here by transcendental is an investigation of the, of the mechanisms necessary for experience. So transcendental here doesn't refer to transcendence. He's not here interested in going beyond the physical world into some other realm. He's instead, by using the term transcendental instead of transcendence, he is instead concerned with the operations that make experience itself possible that are universal, and by virtue of being universal, almost take on a metaphysical quality, which some would say would be uh, Kant's metaphysics. That is, he is looking within experience, within the physical world, to find certain universal truths that can be then construed, understood, as being universal, as being, to really throw a wrench in all of this to, in themselves, be kind of transcendent then, even though we are not, from the get-go, looking at this problem transcendentally through a transcendent lens or trying to transcend this world. If anything, it's a transcendence through imminence, but that's more complicated. So that's what transcendental refers to, whereas aesthetic, that is transcendental aesthetic, aesthetic refers to uh, appearances, to the things that we see in the world and our perceptions of them, what some other people, uh, maybe not Germans, would have called taste, uh, how, we, how we engage with the world, which also sets the stage for phenomenology, if anyone's familiar with that. Don't want to go into that right now, but in any case, 
This is kind of the bedrock of phenomenology. So in this case, the transcendental aesthetic is an investigation into the mechanisms that make experience of appearances of, of objects in the world make uh, our experience of them possible. So what are these mechanisms that are mind? Well, they are the capacity to have a priori sensibilities, to have an innate grasp of space and time that occurs within our minds. And that demonstrates the extent to which space and time doesn't exist out there, away from us, but is actually a reflection of what our mind, uh, our minds are all capable of. So let's dig into them one by one, that is space and then time. Space permits us to grasp a magnitude of something uh, in, in the world. It's shape as well, like how much space is it taking up? Like my sitting in this chair, I am taking up space in a David shape, as you can see. And it also allows us to grasp the relations between objects. As I sit here, my bed frame is right behind me. Even if you're just listening to this, imagine that there are objects around me. It is because I have an innate possibility or uh, capacity to experience space to understand it, I can understand how there can be an absence of possible objects between myself and another thing, demonstrating or revealing that we have this innate capacity to witness, to experience things as being possibly separate from one another within space. So space or our knowledge of space is innate in that we don't learn about it through experience, as I mentioned earlier, else we would, our perception of the world would be very chaotic and wacky, It'd be like cartoonish. It would be impossible then to imagine a world without space, to imagine no non-space. We always have to be existing within space. We can imagine no objects, but we have to always anticipate that there is going to be space. Now, he qualifies that space is a simultaneous universality. That is, there can be many spaces. The room I'm in is a space, and the kitchen next to this room is a space, and outdoors is its own space, and any other room is its own space. But these are all segments of one large homogeneous universal space. That is what we know to be space. So space is the ground for all possible objects, physical objects that we can experience and see and touch and sense in the world. Now time, very similarly, exists as the bedrock, as the ground, not necessarily for objects as we might appear, as they might appear, or as we might, we might perceive them and their shape and their magnitude. Instead, time is going to exist as the bedrock for possible change of these objects, for simultaneity of objects. How I can sit in this chair right next to this bedpost and anticipate that neither of us are going to just disappear because that would imply that time has, doesn't exist. Like if there was just a disappearance and I could do a trick with the camera to make it seem as though I've disappeared, I won't do that. But if you were just talking to someone on the street and they just poof disappeared, that would just defy all the laws of what we know about time. So time is the bedrock of all possible understandings of objects in the world, their possibilities for change and the certain laws that will allow how they can change where a thing can't just disappear and can then exist alongside space to give us the possibility of experience as we know it within the world. So unlike space, time is not simultaneous. We don't experience all time at the same time. There isn't one homogeneous empty time, like there's a homogeneous empty space that exists 
potentially for infinity. Time works sequentially. So we exist in one moment and we will then exist in another. But we can say that perhaps there's one line, one lineage of time, one linear trajectory of time that we exist within or exist on. And in which case this is comprised of many different successive events and instances that comprise this line. So this is just an important qualification in the difference between space and time. And just to make it clear, Kant's investigation of the transcendental aesthetic, or is conducting this investigation, is to do these tasks of finding out the properties of space and time as they appear to us as human beings. So if we were to leave humans and think about another animal species or another species altogether, perhaps their conceptions of space and time are going to be entirely different. They might be open to other a priori sensibilities that we aren't even privy to, that we can't even possibly comprehend. So space and time for Kant are the ground for possible synthetic a priori propositions. Now synthetic a priori propositions are propositions, judgments, ideas about the world that do not necessarily come to us from birth. They are experienced and then from their being experienced they can then be understood universally. Which might seem totally strange as to what I said earlier, that is Things happen in the world, or in the universe, yet we cannot necessarily surmise or extract universal quality from them because they might be different for everyone. Kant, however, discovers that there are some events, phenomena in the world, that are universal, or that we can understand universally. So they are synthetic in that they relate to experience, they are not analytic. What That would relate to the mind and then be universal propositions uh, about various different things in the world. They are synthetic a priori. That is, they are events in the world that are bound within the world and are fundamental, almost physical principles and properties of the world that can't be changed. So the one that he provides for us, that he offers us, is that every single effect has a cause. There's not a single effect that does not have a cause. Nothing happens in the world without being produced by something else, acting upon it. Because if you were to have an effect without a cause, you would have a god. You would have something that is able to break away from the chain of cause and effect that underwrites our entire world. So the very fact that we can extract the universal qualities from what are disparate events, that is, we aren't born with an understanding of cause and effect. We instead have to live in the world and then see that this is exactly how everything works, that we're able to say, oh, this must be a fundamental quality of all things in the world. They are brought about by a cause. They can't just not, they can't come from nothing. So it is something we aren't necessarily born with, like our innate capacity for space to understand, grasp space and time, and therefore things within it. It must come to us through experience, yet is nevertheless universal. So the last thing I'll say on this, uh, specifically about space and time, is that Kant specifies that when talking about space, he's referring specifically to all things in the outer world, that is outside of us as human beings. We are talking about things that exist in the world, that exist in space, which affects us as well, which applies to us as well as humans that exist within space. Time, however, is not limited to just outer experience. Time also refers to inner experience. So for example, if I were to think about a chair in my head, and I would suggest you do the same, you imagine a chair, that chair is not taking up any physical space. 
it is very similar to actually seeing a chair in that if we saw a chair, we aren't actually seeing a chair, we're seeing our mind's idea about what we're seeing in the world. We, if we just conjured up the image of a chair in our mind without any external stimulation, that chair is not taking up any space, yet it nevertheless exists in the world in some measure, that is in our own minds. It is conditioned then, not by space, but by time. That chair is taking up time in our minds. Every single moment that it exists in our mind's eye, it is existing within time. It can't exist outside of time, very much like anything outside of human experience or outside of the human mind in the world can exist outside of space. So time refers to both inner experience in our mind and outer experience of things in the world, whereas space refers only to, or is the ground for only those things that exist out of the world, or <laughs> out that exists out of our mind. And yeah, that's essentially what's going on with the transcendental aesthetic. I hope that I was able to offer you something that you found useful. And stay tuned for more episodes on Kant, more likely, or likely, and eventually more on German idealism. This was also supposed to function as a kind of supplement to Foucault's lectures on the will to know, in which we talk about Kant a little bit. But yeah, if there's anything I got wrong, I'd love to hear about it. Anything I excluded, I'd love to hear about it. If you like what I did, you can like, share, subscribe. You can leave a good review on a podcast platform. And yeah, on that note, take care.